Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us to study Christian apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology to cultivate a, a uh, an intellectually fulfilled Christian worldview. Um, yeah, if you don't know what's going on, then you have been living under a rock. If you do not know that there is a worldwide pandemic that is infecting thousands, and, you know, we've got, like, thousands of people dead in in Italy in China we've got we've got some deaths in the United States I don't have the statistics in front of me uh other people they get sick they're asymptomatic um uh, and they pass it on to other people they're kind of like typhoid mary they never get the, they never get sick themselves but they kind of just carry it and then other people they get a little bit sick it's not it's kind of like the common cold to them and then they get better it affects everyone differently the most vulnerable are the elderly and those with underlying conditions and unfortunately my mother and father meet both of those conditions my mother is in her 60s she's got severe COPD if you don't know what COPD is it's a deteriorate a deteriorative lung disease um and it makes it really, really difficult to breathe. Sometimes she has, uh, she gets into really bad shape breathing, just getting to and from the bathroom or going to the kitchen and back sometimes on, on her worst days. Uh, and it gets worse. You know, uh, um, I don't know if you know this, but R.C. Sproul had it. Uh, people, you know, so she's really, being elderly and having COPD, she's really, really, really... I mean, it would absolutely kill her if she got it. And my dad, he's in his 70s, so it would it would probably kill him too. And there are some instances in which people, young people, people younger than me, they go into comas, uh, medically induced comas. They get on, they're on ventilators, they're hospitalized, they're in really, really bad shape, and they're young. But like I said, it doesn't affect everyone that way. And some of the young people who have been affected in such a severe way have underlying conditions. Although there there were a couple, I read a couple of stories uh, recently um, where these these two. There was a twenty twenty five year old man. He didn't have any underlying conditions. He had very strong lungs. He was an athlete, and it affected him. So it's this the the country is shut down. We're all quarantined. We're all staying in our houses as much as possible. Those of us who are smart, anyway. Looking at you, spring break college kids. And by the way, don't call them millennials. They're not millennials. Those are Gen Z. I'm a millennial. And I can tell you, <laughs> we haven't been on spring break in a decade. And yes, that's very sad. But that's the way it is. So, you know, because... Because I have uh, two old people under my care, 
that two elderly people that I care for, I'm trying not to get it. I'm very fearful for them. If I get it, I pass it on to them. I, I will probably recover from it. I'll be okay, most likely, but they won't. So I'm... Fortunately, uh, one of my cousins is do running all of the errands for us. She's getting all of the groceries and the the... She's getting all of the food. She's getting uh, our, our medications for us at the pharmacies and, and stuff like that so that I don't have to go out and nobody else has to go out. Because if I go out, I could possibly bring it home to them, the people who I'm supposed to be taking care of, and that's not good. So why am I talking about the coronavirus on uh, a podcast about Christian apologetics and biblical studies and all that stuff? Well, because you know it is relevant it it it's part of the christian worldview that there is suffering in the world there is evil there is sickness there is um hardships and trials and we got to talk about that we got to talk about why god would why would god if he's all powerful and he's all loving uh why would god permit this affliction to kill so many people and for other people who it doesn't kill but it gives them a really unpleasant time for a while until they recover why would god allow potentially our economy to suffer like it is uh because i mean i mean everyone's at home everything's shut down restaurants and and pharmacies i mean you you know if you you can only go through the to the drive-through at a lot of these restaurants. Um, stores like Target. Uh, you know, one of my one of my friends is uh, he 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 wanted to go to uh, I think it was Walmart or Best Buy to look at computers and see prices and and send me some of them, see if I see which ones I could afford. But when he got there, it was closed. He had to turn around and he had to go back home. If you've seen videos of New York City, it's like something out of an apocalyptic movie, like that Will Smith movie, I Am Legend. And this is definite. People are afraid that this might cause another Great Depression. Why would God allow that? I mean, the Great Depression, if you read the history books, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Why would God allow that to happen? He's all powerful and he's all loving. If he's all-powerful, he has the power to stop it. If he's all-loving, he, he would want to stop it, right? He doesn't. A loving God wouldn't want people to suffer and, and be miserable, right? So if he's all-powerful, he can stop it. And if he's all-loving, he would want to stop it. So why doesn't he stop it? Well, atheists would conclude that the reason he doesn't is because there is no all-loving and all-powerful God. Or at the very least, there's one who's either impotent or malevolent, at minimum. But the problem of evil is not just what I'm going to talk about today. I'm also going to talk about some of the ways that Christians have been responding to quarantines um, and churches closing down. I have to tell you, it's surprising how many people, uh, when this, when this all, when all hell broke loose, how many people aff they affirm. Basically, the prosperity gospel. They think they're invincible because they're a follower of Christ. So they could just go, I'm faithful. I'm just going to go anywhere I want. 
And then there are others who are condemning churches for closing. And I, I just really feel compelled to address this because there's a lot of bad theological thinking here. So, but first, first I'm going to talk about the problem of evil. Why does God allow the coronavirus? I mean, he's more powerful than Thanos with all of the infinity stones. He could just snap his fingers and all the bacteria would just go out of existence. They would just dissolve. We, we wouldn't have this problem anymore. Why does he allow it to happen? Well, as I've said in a previous podcast episode, and as I said in my book, shameless plug, The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical uh, case for the God of Christianity, available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon.com. I said in that book and in the previous podcast episode, way back in season one, that there are two versions of the problem of evil. There's the logical version and the evidential version. The logical version uh, says that God and evil are, they cancel each other out. If one exists, the other cannot. Uh, so they're kind of like the irresistible force and the immovable object. If there exists an irresistible force, then there cannot be an immovable object, because an irresistible force would be able to move any object, no matter how heavy or how large. And if there's a, an immovable object, then there cannot be an irresistible force, because even if the irresistible force is able to move everything else, there's at least one thing it cannot move, namely the immovable object. So the irresistible force is not really irresistible. If one exists, the other cannot. And that's the claim of the logical version of the problem of evil. If God, if an all-powerful, all-loving God exists, evil cannot exist. And if evil exists, an all-powerful, all-loving God cannot exist. This is the claim of the logical version of the problem of evil. If one exists, the other cannot. So... The, in syllogistic form, it would be, one, God is all-powerful and all-good. Two, evil exists. <clears throat> now, obviously, this needs additional explanation, because there is nothing explicitly contradictory about the statements, God exists and evil exists. God exists and evil exists. They're not as explicitly contradictory as something like a square circle or a married bachelor, or <clears throat> or the irresistible force and immovable object. Those are pretty explicitly contradictory. So there's obviously implicit, there's an implicit contradiction that are, that puts these two statements, God exists and evil exists, uh, and they're in hidden premises. And I think the hidden premises are these. They're two in number. Three, if God is all-powerful, then he can create any world that he wants. Four, if God is all-loving, then he would prefer a world without suffering. And so from these, it follows that God desires a world without evil and suffering and has the ability to create it. It therefore follows that evil does not exist, in contradiction to premise two. Since that kind of a world does not exist, the atheist would argue, it follows that God doesn't exist. The atheist would say that from the, these two hidden premises, God is all-powerful, then he can create any world that he wants, and if God is all-loving, then he would prefer a world without suffering. It follows that the logical version of the problem of evil is true, and therefore atheism is true. The problem, though, is that most philosophers, 
both Christians, both theists, and atheists have almost universally abandoned the logical version of the problem of evil. They don't use it anymore. They don't think it can hold up. And that's because it it bears an extraordinarily heavy burden of proof. Because for this argument for atheism to be sound, all of the premises have to be necessarily true. They have to be necessarily true. By necessarily, I mean logically necessarily true. They, they, it, it has to be the case that saying that they're false is just impossible. But if it's even possible that these hidden premises are not true, then the logical version collapses. For any argument to be sound, all of the premises must be true. If you even show that one of the premises is not true, then you can't get to the conclusion. That's all you need to do to show that, a, that an argument is fallacious, is just show that a minimum of one of the premises is false. It's like, it's, it's like a, oh, what's the name of that tower where you put sticks? Jenga. You, it's like a Jenga tower, you know? If you just pull out one... That, well, that's not really a good analogy, because you, you can pull out uh, one of the pieces of wood and it and it can still stand but if you pull out the wrong one then it'll fall but yeah it's it, it's very you know you don't have to you don't have to refute, to refute every premise in a in a syllogism to show that it's invalid you just have to refute one so let's look at these premises are they necessarily true is it possible that god could create any kind of world that he desires now we are dealing with natural evil here not with moral evil like in previous discussions of the problem of evil. Um, I, dealt, I deal with moral evil most often because that's the kind of evil that we are more often than not exposed to. Uh, as I think about what causes people to suffer, the vast majority of it is sin. It's people doing bad things to each other. And we are, fe we are affected by people's immoral choices either directly or indirectly. Uh, but there are causes of suffering that aren't anyone's fault. So when addressing the moral problem of evil, I would argue that it's not necessarily true that, you know, that God could create a world of free creatures where everyone always does the right thing and never harms another one. Uh, God cannot force someone to freely do something. If they freely do it, if they do it freely, they're not forced. If they're forced, they don't do it freely. Um, and omnipotence is not the ability to do anything that's logically possible. It's possible that God wants a world of free will, and I, I think it's actually probable, because as I've argued in the past, if men don't have free will, love is impossible, rationality is impossible, and God really wants us to love him and to love each other. So God wants a world of free will. He wants us to be free creatures. He wants us to have the ability to choose to either love him or hate him, the ability to choose to love each other or hate each other, to do good to each other or evil to each other. Without free will, it is impossible to love. And I argue that it's at least logically possible that any world of free creatures God could create, there would be some people who would freely choose 
to do evil and cause suffering. So it may be the case that even though a world in which everyone always does the right thing is logically possible for God to create, it may not be feasible. It's logically possible that if Bob were in circumstance X, he would freely choose A instead of non-A. But it may not be the case that if Bob were in X, he would choose A instead of non-A. Bob might choose non-A instead of A in circumstance X. And if that's the case, well, there's nothing God can do about that unless he forces Bob to choose A, which would override his freedom. So it, so in this case, it's not feasible for God to actualize a world in which Bob is in X and Bob chooses A instead of non-A, because that's just not what Bob would choose in that circumstance. But this is the problem of moral evil. What about natural evil? Well, it may be, it may be the case that God cannot create a world in which Everyone always learns the kinds of moral lessons that they need to learn unless they go through some kind of suffering. You know, suffering produces character. We've got uh, we've got a whole lot of Bible verses that that speak to this, um, like Romans chapter five verses three to five, which says, and I quote. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, end quote. And James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, which says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So it may be the case that God is not able, even though he's omnipotent, he's not able to create a world in which we learn certain moral virtues unless we first go through a trial period of, of suffering. Um, God, God cannot just snap his puppets and make a a perfect character, a, a perfect person, at least one who it who is morally perfect or, or morally mature freely, and not just not just God pulling puppet strings. If God wants a free creature who is morally mature then it may be the case that people need to go through some some trials some testings um for example you know if if peop, if god wants to develop courage in people he has to allow danger if he wants to if he wants to cultivate compassion in us he's got to allow suffering so that we can be compassionate to other people if we're going to cultivate a spirit of forgiveness then we've got to evil has got to be done to us so we have sins to forgive self sacrifice you can't have self sacrifice without hardship you can't have charity without poverty you would never know what courage is unless you had to face danger you would never know what forgiveness is unless someone had wronged you and gave you a sin to forgive you would never know what it means to give to the needy if there were no needy people you can't just snap your fingers and suddenly develop these traits in a puppet Puppet morality is no morality at all. I don't 
I don't praise my Echo Dot when it uh, compliments me if I tell it to compliment me. It's just doing what it's programmed to do. So God may not be able to create a world. Um, and coronavirus, sickness, suffering. You know, we can we can be. I, I've re I've read news stories of young of uh, children and teenagers. They, they're you know they ride around the neighborhood on their bicycles and they they bring things to elderly people who are most vulnerable to uh, the coronavirus. They bring them toilet paper and paper towels. They bring them their medications. They bring them groceries. Um, you know, it, you know, well, on their bicycle, if you know, on in their cars, if they're old enough to drive, sixteen and over, um, they, they, they help out. They're being charitable. They're being loving. And, you know, without this coronavirus epidemic, they wouldn't have that ability. They wouldn't have that opportunity. I mean, I mean, they could still do it, but they wouldn't have the the motivation. They wouldn't think, oh, I, I need to. I, I need to go get medication for the my elderly neighbor. Um, you know, it just wouldn't occur to them. Um, so, and I'm really attacking both of these uh, hidden premises. If God is all-powerful, then he can create any world that he wants. Not necessarily. It's possible that he's not able to create a world where people have moral cultivation unless they have a, a trial of, of suffering um and hey what is corona you know these i i've noticed that a lot of moral virtues they correspond with certain evils certain sufferings courage corresponds to danger compassion corresponds to suffering forgiveness corresponds to uh sins evil self-sacrifice corresponds to hardship charity corresponds to poverty could we have courage to leave our homes to help people in need if there wasn't the coronavirus? You know, these, these teenagers that I mentioned, they're showing compassion to their elderly neighbors. Um, Self-sacrifice, you know, they're putting themselves in danger by going out into the public. Um, and this would also, I think, undermine the fourth premise of the logical version. It of and this is this is this is all about natural evil, because natural evil can can bring about some of these uh, sufferings that can cultivate moral growth. You don't necessarily have to have moral evil to, to do these things, but you can have natural evil. You know, you can have natural evil to uh, to have suffering that produces endurance, and endurance that produces character, and character that produces hope, and hope hope that would not put you to shame because God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. You don't need more. You don't necessarily need moral evil for that to happen. You can have natural. You can have natural evil. Natural suffering. It's just you know just suffering. You can have natural sufferings too, as James chapter one verses two to four says, uh, to have trials of many kinds to test your faith to produce perseverance, so that we can let perseverance finish its work, so that you we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
So I think the problem of of the logical version of the problem of evil is is unsustainable. In order for the atheist to sh to show that this version that the logical version of the problem of evil is is successful, he has to show that it is impossible for God to have morally sufficient reasons for permitting natural evil such as the coronavirus. He's He's got to show that it's just God just cannot. There, there's no conceivable circumstances in which God could allow uh, natural evil like pestilence, coronavirus, Spanish flu, whatever, uh, and 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 bring a greater good out of it like moral cultivation. He's got to show that it's impossible. He can't show that it's. He can't argue that it's improbable. This is this is not the probabilistic version of the problem of evil. This is the logical version of the problem of evil. He can't say, "Oh well, it, yeah, it's possible, but it's just unlikely." No, that won't work if he's running this version of the argument. He's got to show that it's impossible. Cannot God just cannot allow natural evil? And he's got to show he's got to show that. Either that, or he has to show that God could create a world where you have moral cultivation, you have moral growth, or, you know, to use Christianese, sanctification, without, now he's, he's got to show, he's got to show that God could do, that God could do that without allowing any form of suffering from natural evil or moral evil. So whether, so whether we're running the, 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 the logical version of the problem of moral evil or the logical version of the problem of natural evil, he's got to show that it's impossible that, that God can achieve the ends that he wants without allowing suffering to his human creatures. And he's got to show that God can't have any good reason. He can't. Just, it's impossible. This is why most philosophers, including atheists, most atheist philosophers, they don't use this anymore because they can't show – even they have to admit, okay, yeah, I mean it's possible at least. At minimum, it's possible that God could have good reasons for permitting all these things. And so the logical version doesn't work. Well, what about the, what about the probabilistic version? What about the – or <clears throat> this also goes by the name evidential version. Uh in this case, the atheist has a much lighter burden of proof. He doesn't have to show that it is impossible for God to have g good reasons for permitting suffering, and he doesn't have to show uh, that it's possible that God could not cre achieve his ends without permitting these sufferings. He just has to, to, to show that it's unlikely that it's improbable. That's why it's called the probabilistic version. He just has to show that, you know, on the scale of probability, the scale tips in favor of God not having any good reasons, and therefore a loving God would not allow things like the coronavirus to occur. Well, can the atheist s sustain this version of the problem of evil? Can he successfully defend this argument for atheism? I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> first, I want to appeal to the butterfly effect. The butterfly, the butterfly effect and cognitive limitations. Uh, this point, 
it says uh, that I don't think we're in a position to judge one way or another whether it's probable that God has good reasons for permitting suffering. We're just not in a position to make such probability judgments, given that we humans are limited in time and space and are of finite knowledge. God, on the other hand, is omniscient. The Bible says that he sees the end of history from its beginning, in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, and he knows what would occur in any given circumstances. So, really, the only one who would be in the position to make such probabilities would be God himself. In chapter 7 of his book, On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision, Dr. William Lane Craig offers two illustrations to flesh out this point, one from contemporary science and the other from pop culture. The first illustration that Dr. Craig gives draws on the concept of chaos theory that tiny disturbances in a system can set off a chain reaction that leads to catastrophic consequences. Craig makes reference to a butterfly fluttering its little wings on a tree branch. People looking just think, oh, what a pretty butterfly. But little do they know that the fluttering of this butterfly's wings has set in motion a chain of events which will eventually result in a massive hurricane. No one looking at that little butterfly could possibly know that a hurricane would be the outcome of what they're observing. The second illustration Craig uses draws from the movie Sliding Doors, which features a woman named Helen, portrayed by actress Gwyneth Paltrow. The movie opens with Helen hurrying downstairs to catch a train, but as she nears the train, her life splits into two totally different timelines, two totally different lives Helen could live. In one life, she is enormously successful, prosperous, and happy. In the other life, she encounters failure, misery, and unhappiness. Whether the life that she lives uh, is the successful, prosperous, and happy life, or whether the life she lives is the one full of failure, misery, and unhappiness, all depends on a split-second difference on whether or not she is able to pass through the subway doors. Dr. Craig then points out that that difference is due to whether a little girl playing with her dolly is either A, snatched away by her father, or B, momentarily blocks Helen's path. Craig says that we then have to wonder about the events which led up to that event. Craig says that perhaps whether... A or B occurs is due to whether the girl and her father were delayed leaving the house that morning because his daughter refused to eat her cereal, or whether maybe the man just wasn't paying attention to what his daughter was doing because he was preoccupied with reading the newspaper. What led up to that event? We don't have a clue. The movie has a twist at the end. In the happy and successful life, Helen is killed. In the life that brought her so much misery, it turns around and she finds true love. Dr. William Lang Craig's point is that given our cognitive limitations, we are in no position to judge whether or not God can have a morally sufficient reason for permitting any event. Given the dizzying complexity of life and the incomprehensible way in which events are intertwined with one another, it is beyond the mental capacity 
of any human to say with any confidence whatsoever that when some incident of suffering occurs, that it's improbable that God has a good reason for permitting it. From Helen's perspective, whether or not she got through the sliding doors didn't seem like such a life-changing event to her, but if you're an omniscient being like God, then you know that whether a certain event happens or not, that can have radical effects on future events that take place after that. If you want a certain event in the future to occur, you have to allow a certain event in the present to occur. If A doesn't happen, then B won't happen. If B doesn't happen, then C won't happen. If C doesn't happen, then D won't happen. If D doesn't happen, then E won't happen. If you want to get E to happen, you're going to have to allow events A, B, C, and D to happen. Now, events A, B, C, and D may be events of horrible suffering, but events E, event E is a greater good which justifies the allowance of events A through D. God knew that if he didn't allow suffering A, then greater good E would not occur. If God did not allow suffering A, then greater good E would not occur. So, why did God allow why why is God allowing the coronavirus to affect to to kill so many people and and cause so many other people to suffer? Why why is God, you know, possibly, we don't know this yet, uh why is God allowing the economy which is I have to say Trump did a really good job of bringing the economy to such a really really great point. I don't like letting my political slip slide, but yeah, he, he kind of did. And now it's it's like a roller coaster. It's going downhill because ever because everything is shut down. Why is God allowing that? Why is God allowing that to happen? I would answer, yep, yeah, I don't know, but God does. God knows the ripple effects that emerge from a single event. And here's the thing: think of the butterfly, the butterfly on the twig. Think of Helen getting through the sliding doors. These are tiny, seemingly insignificant events. The coronavirus is a pretty darn big event that is affecting many, many people. If a hurricane can occur from a butterfly fluttering its wings on a twig, and if whether or not Helen dies in a car accident or finds true love depends on whether or not she gets through sliding doors there's no telling how many there may be a plethora of morally sufficient events that god is allowing to happen uh, that that god wants to bring about by permitting this to occur Maybe there's some event in the 25th century that God needs to bring about, and he can't bring it about unless he allows the coronavirus pandemic. Maybe there's – there could be 200 different reasons in different centuries from now, in different places, that God wants to bring about that he couldn't bring about unless he allows the, corona, the coronavirus pandemic in the 20th century. If you're a sci-fi nerd like I am, if, or if you're a time travel enthusiast, you know full well what I'm talking about. You know full well that changing even a single event can send ripples through time. Every event brings about other events. So if one event doesn't occur, 
the events that that event prompts or causes won't occur. Now, God is omniscient. He knows what will happen if he allows or stops X from occurring. If X would bring about a greater good, or greater goods, plural, or whether X would prevent a disaster, then God, being all-knowing as well as all-powerful and all-loving, might allow it. You know, J. Warner Wallace is right when we got to bring God's omniscience into this. We can't just bring his power and his, and his benevolence. we got to bring his knowledge into it. God knows what will happen if, if, if God can bring about a great good. And the Bible teaches this. This is not just philosophical argumentation on my part. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, quote, And we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. End quote. And we don't just have a verse. We have, we have an entire story where God brought about a greater good by permitting evil and suffering. That well, I mean, there's more than one example, but my favorite example is the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. Now, if you haven't read the book of Genesis, let me inform you. Joseph was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. Joseph was one of Jacob's twelve sons. Joseph's brothers hated him because he was Jacob's favorite child, and this was obvious from the fact that Jacob constantly showered Joseph with far more affection than his other children. One day, Joseph's brothers finally had enough, and they sold him into slavery. Now, if being sold in being if being a a slave in in a far off land weren't bad in and of itself, Joseph suffered in his slavery as well. Pontifar's wife falsely accused Joseph of trying to rape her. Oh, but she must be believed. <laughs> uh, you know, she, she did this out of spite because she came on to him and he refused to have sex with her, so she did it out of spite. This resulted in Joseph being sent to prison. While Joseph was in prison, he was able to accurately interpret the dreams of two other prisoners who were there. One of those prisoners told the pharaoh about Joseph's amazing ability to accurate, accurately interpret dreams once they were released, and Pharaoh was in need of, of having someone interpret his dreams. So Pharaoh let Joseph out of prison, and Joseph interpreted his dreams for him. Joseph told the pharaoh that his two dreams meant that there would be seven years of abundant food, followed by seven years of horrible famine, and that in order to prevent the widespread starvation, he should store up food during the seven years of abundance so that they could compensate for the lack of food the next seven years. Pharaoh elected Joseph as governor and put him in charge of food storage. As bad as Joseph's experience was, God had a good reason for allowing it all to happen. If God hadn't let Joseph's brother sell him into slavery, Joseph would never have been able to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. He wouldn't have ever probably gone to Egypt at all, and that would mean that Pharaoh would not have known to save up food during the seven years of abundance so that they would have food to eat during the seven years of famine. And that would mean that thousands of people would have died of starvation, including Jacob and his family, the bloodline of, I mean, the, the, the one whom the, the, was going to produce the Messiah in, in the coming centuries. Now, as Joseph was being carried off to Egypt, 
We can imagine him thinking, why didn't God stop my brothers from selling me into slavery? Now I'll never see my father and younger brother Benjamin again. Now, if Joseph had reasoned like an atheist, he would have thought, I can't see any good reason for God not to have intervened to stop my brothers from selling me into slavery. If he's all-powerful, he could have stopped my brothers from selling me into slavery. And if he's all-loving, he would have wanted to stop my brothers from selling me into slavery. So God must not exist. But Joseph would have been wrong. God had a good reason. And Joseph realized this later. He realized God's purpose for allowing his suffering. And Jacob's suffering as well, for that matter, since Jacob was mourning because he believed a wild animal had killed Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, quote, You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people, end quote. God had a reason for not intervening when Joseph's brothers were sinning against him. But from Joseph's vantage point, or for anyone else for that matter, in that temporal vantage point, it was impossible for them to discern what those reasons were until later. If Joseph, or if anyone else, had judged that yeah, it's improbable that God has a good reason for allowing him to be sold into slavery, they would have been wrong. So that's one reason why the probabilistic version of the problem of evil doesn't work, is that we just we don't know the ripple effects that each event, good or bad, will have. So God may allow something bad to happen to bring about a greater good or multiple greater goods. Second reason why suffering doesn't make God's existence improbable is that the Bible teaches certain doctrines that increase the probability of God and suffering. It is the case that the problem of evil and suffering is actually easier to deal with given the Christian God instead of a generic concept of God. The Bible teaches certain things that increase the probability of suffering. What are the, these doctrines? Well, I already mentioned one, namely that God's use of the butterfly effect actually has a biblical basis, as it's presupposed in the story of Joseph, and it's explicitly stated in Romans 8.28. However, there are others. Let me mention uh, just two of them. One, God's main purpose for this life is not happiness, but knowledge of himself. And a mountain of testimony shows that God uses suffering to bring people to repentance. One thing I've noticed from listening to testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of people telling how they came to faith in Christ, this is what I've noticed. Every single one of them involved a long, hard road of of suffering and hardship that culminated in the person coming to the end of their rope and crying out to Jesus for help and salvation. What we need to realize is that we're in a sin situation. We've all fallen short of God's moral standard, Romans 3.23. And as a holy and just judge, Psalm chapter 11, verse 6, Psalm chapter 9, verses 7 to 8, Psalm chapter 10, God must punish sin. But, as 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Therefore, since God is love, God doesn't want to punish us, but he desires to forgive us. So, God became incarnate, as John 1, 14 says, and he took the punishment on himself at the cross of Calvary, as Romans 5, 8 says. All one needs to do 
is repent and receive this gift, confessing Jesus as their Savior and Lord. See Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7 and Romans chapter 10 verse 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. If God knows that a person would freely be saved if he endured through an immense amount of suffering, then it makes sense that God will allow suffering to enter that person's life for the sake of their eternity. After all, which is better? To suffer and inherit eternal life, an, eternal life, an eternity of bliss and endless happiness and glory, or to not live a life of suffering at all and end up being annihilated for all eternity. That's what hell is. Matt, see Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. If you believe it's eternal conscious torment, then I, I suggest that you go back a, a, a few episodes. I have a two-part episode on this, and I'm hoping to eventually get a book out on it. it. It's a little slow going, but I'm hoping to get it out by April. Uh, I've just I've had a lot of I've had a lot to do with this whole Genesis primeval history paper series um, and the recording of the of the blog posts. So there's an audio uh, adaptation of all of the blog posts. And I mean, cerebral faith is really becoming a full time job. That's why I could really use your support. Patreon dot com slash cerebral faith. But anyway, that. um Anyway, so many people have come to Christ because of immense suffering. Testimony upon I mean, Lee Strobel wrote a whole book where he interviews people and they give testimonies that involve suffering. Lee Strobel that book is called The Case for Grace. I I I advise you to read that book to check out some of these testimonies. And we also have this in the in the in Jesus's parable of the prodigal of the son, as recorded in Luke chapter fifteen, verses eleven to twelve. The prodigal son didn't return home until he had lost everything, and be, and he became so hungry that even the pigs' food looked appealing to him. It was only until the prodigal son hit rock bottom that he, quote unquote, came to his senses and returned to his father. I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said. Quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, end quote. And as Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen once said, quote, Sometimes the only way the good Lord can get into some hearts is to break them, end quote. Another uh, Bible teaching that I've already talked about is that God wants to use – God wants – God, the Bible teaches that God uses suffering to shape our moral character. And I've already read some of those passages, like Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Um, and I've already talked about this as a possible reason for why God uh, would allow, you know, when I address the logical version of the problem of evil, why God would allow suffering, even though he's powerful enough to stop it. So... But the Bible actually teaches that God does that. Now, atheists at this point might object that we have no reason to think that these biblical doctrines are true. However, this response would be illegitimate, for it's the atheist who is making the claim 
ergo bearing the burden of proof, that suffering makes God's existence improbable. To this I say, not the Christian God. The atheist needs to show that the Christian God is improbable relative to the suffering in the world. What he needs to do is either one, falsify these biblical doctrines, or two, show that they wouldn't affect the probability structure even if conceded. Third reason why I don't think the probabilistic version of the problem of evil succeeds, and I really have no time to unpack this, uh, is that relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence is probable. Probabilities are always relative to some background information. For example, suppose we're given the information that Dave is a member of Greenville Wesleyan Church and that 90% of Greenville Wesleyan Church members are young earth creationists. Relative to that information, it's relatively, <clears throat> it's highly probable that Dave thinks evolution is false. But now suppose we're given the additional information that Dave is a biologist and that 99% of biologists do accept the theory of evolution. Relative to this new information, it now becomes highly improbable that Dave is a young earth creationist. There are many sound arguments for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. Now, I do not have any time at all to go into these, even in a brief summary format, because I'm all, I am want my pod, I want all my podcasts to be an hour long. I'm already going on 49 minutes, and I have another topic to talk about. But if you want to check out these other arguments, um, go to CerebralFaith.net. I've got a whole bunch of blog posts on it. Um, I talked about the, I've talked about these arguments in past podcast episodes specifically i've done i've unpacked these in a lot of detail in the first in the first seven episodes of the of the cerebral faith podcast um in episodes two and three of the cerebral faith podcast i talk about the kalam cosmological argument in episode four i talk about the fine-tuning argument um, in episode 5, I talk about the local fine-tuning argument. In episode 6, I talk about the moral argument. And in episode 7, I talk about the ontological argument. And I also talk about these in, in pretty good detail in my book, The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. Available in Amazon on Amazon.com in paperback and Kindle. Please go, please please go get yourself a copy. Um, so I think, but you know, there's there's others than the Kalam fine tuning, local fine tuning, moral and ontological arguments. There's also the argument from contingency, which I don't talk about in the book, but I do have a podcast episode on. It was actually just a few weeks ago. Um, I think it was the first episode of this new season in 2020 that I talked about the argument from contingency. There's also the argument from beauty. There's the argument from intentionality. Jerry Walls, I think, talks about this in his uh, the book that he uh, edited <clears throat> and produced called uh, Two Dozen or So Arguments for the Existence of God. I think that these arguments... Now, obviously, these arguments have to be sound in order for them to establish that God exists and therefore affect the probability structure. But if they are sound, and I think they are, I've studied these for many years. I'm almost 30, and I've I've been studying these since I was in my these arguments 
the evidence for and against the arg the arguments that apologists give, the arguments that atheists give against them. I've been studying them since I was in my late teens. I've not found any good refutation to these arguments. So if they're sound, then that makes God's existence way more probable. I mean, in my book, The Case for the One True God, I have a, an illustration with a bunch of uh, metallic balls on a scale. And all of the arguments for God's existence are uh, labeled on each of the individual balls. And then on the other ball, on the other side of the scale, is evil and suffering. And on the side with all of the natural theology balls, the arguments for God's existence, they tip the scale. Evil and suffering is not strong enough to tip the scale in favor of atheism. The moral argument uh, has a peculiar bearing on this subject insofar as it refers to um, moral evil, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, in any case, I think we can see that the, the, the probabilistic version of the problem of evil and the logical version, they just don't work. God could have a good reason to permit the coronavirus or any other natural or moral evil. Now, before I end this podcast, I spent a <clears throat> an improportionate amount of time, a disproportionate amount of time, rather, on the the suffering aspect that the coronavirus ca is causing, um, both biologically and economically. But now I want... I think it's a good thing I did that, though, because this is one of the number one uh, obstacles to belief in God. I mean, it's – Tim Stratton calls it the number one reason that, that people don't believe in God. Um, you know, as, mu as, as much as atheists go on about divine hiddenness and evolution, science, 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 at the end of the day, it's really the problem of evil that – that's, you know, I mean, at least the ones that actually do have intellectual doubts and, and aren't just, as Ro as Paul says in Romans 1, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The ones that actually do, the ones that actually would change their mind if presented with different information. Uh, this is, at the end of the, of the day, this is really it. Um, objections from, like, evolution and... I mean, those are pretty big as well, don't get me wrong, but yeah, this is, the problem of evil is, like, number one. So I think it's a good, I think it's a good thing that I sp spent so much time on this. But I want to talk about how Christians have been responding to the coronavirus. <clears throat> as I said near the beginning of this podcast, uh, they've been condemning some churches for, clo for, for closing, and I read one status from a person who said uh it is as i think i if i remember i'm probably i'm going to probably paraphrase this but he said in essence it is a very shameful thing for churches to be closing uh during this crisis where is your faith um and i remember saying no wait, he said and and he said um how pastors and church leaders are responding to this is unchristian. And I responded, you know, I think it's unchristian for them to stay open and for people to continue to go to church when there's this 
virus that's like 10 times more contagious than the flu, the regular flu, and that kills elderly people and people with underlying conditions. Um, you know, Jesus told us, and, and he was quoting from the Old Testament when he said, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Now, you know how I love my neighbor? I love my neighbor by washing my hands, social distancing from every other human being that has come into contact with the outside world. I wear a mask and gloves if I do have to go out. And, you know, as much as I love church, you couldn't pay me enough to go. Because, guess what? I have two elderly people under my care. And I don't want to get the coronavirus, pass it on to them, and kill them. So yes, the Bible says, Hebrews 10.25, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, as all the more you see the day approaching. Yes, the Bible says that in Hebrews 10.5. It also says, love your neighbor as yourself. And you know what? It also says, Jesus says not to nullify the word of God in because of your traditions. Okay? God cares more about us taking care of each other than about showing up at a building on a specified day of the week. Do not be like the Pharisees and nullify the word of God because of your traditions. If you interact with old people at all, or people with compromised immune system, stay home. These, a lot of these churches are live-streaming their sermons, and if you want to interact with your fellow church members, you know, there is a thing called Skype. This is the, the we're, we're in the third decade of the 21st century. You can still interact, you can still have fellowship and not be in the same room. But I think God cares way more about us taking care of the vulnerable, the weak, the feeble, people who are the most likely to be fat uh, among the fatalities of this virus than he is about us showing up at a dang building. Okay, I mean, it really, this really makes me mad. I mean, this is, this is the epitome of of undiscerning religiosity of pharisaical behavior uh, you know i i i know it's become very um almost stereotypical for christians to paint other christians they disagree with as as pharisees but in this case i really think the comparison is valid i mean look I mean, these these people, the person who posted that status, they care more about Christians showing up at a building, putting all of the the old, the elderly, the the weak and the feeble, the those with underlying uh, underlying conditions in danger of death, than they are about protecting them. 
Let's turn to Matthew chapter 15 for a moment. Then the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Actually, during the coronavirus, you should definitely wash your hands. <laughs> uh, Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say if that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 to 9. Is that not what's going on here? Honor your father and mother. And if you're, if, you're an, if you're an adult like me, your father and mother are probably old. They're probably old. They're probably vulnerable. I mean, are you going to honor your father and mother by self-quarantining, by not exposing them? To potential, to you know, you you may be you may be an asymptomatic carrier of the coronavirus. Are you going to expose your your elderly father and mother to this virus? Oh, but oh, but sorry, but God said, you know, Hebrews ten fifteen. We got we we, we can't give up the habit of meeting together. We got to go to church. We got to go to church. We got to show up at the building on Sunday. We got to sing the hymns. We got to hear the preacher. What do you think God cares more about? What do you think Jesus cares more about? Jesus is God. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. Do you, do you think that Jesus what do you think that Jesus really cares about whether or not you show at a, up at a building at at the expense of other people? Do you do you think that Jesus is like, well, you know what? You killed your grandparents, you killed your mother and father, and, uh, you know, your brother is in a medically induced coma because he got coronavirus. Oh, but at least you showed up to church. At least you sang those hymns. At least you, at least you read your Bible uh, in front of the stained glass windows. Well, sometimes it, it just be like that sometimes. No, I, I don't think so. I'm sorry. I think churches are right to close during this pandemic. And we can still hear we can still hear the uh, the biblical teachings of the pastor. We got live stream. This is not we're not in the middle ages. This is this is not like the plague. We've got tech you know we are not cavemen. We have technology. You can hear the preaching of the sermon on your computer, on your TV, on your phone. You want to talk? If you want to talk to um, you want to talk to your uh, your church going friends afterwards. Get on Skype, Facebook Messenger, Google Hangouts. You can not only hear them, but you can see them in real time. That is a thing. Do not be Pharisees. Do not. 
do not nullify the word of God for your tradition. The word of God says, love your neighbors as yourself. And somebody who said, who responded to me when I when I commented on that person's post, you know, yes, it's, it's a tragedy that that elderly people die, but you know, if they're Christians, then we know that they're going to a much better place, and they're going to have they have eternal lives. God's going to raise them from the dead. Yeah. Okay. And. I mean, by that logic, you shouldn't feed the hungry. I mean, you you shouldn't worry too much about feeding the hungry because you know if they die of starvation, all you, you know, if they're Christians, at least hey, they're they're gonna go to heaven, intermediate state, and then resurrection. Okay, yeah, I you know, if my if my mother and father, God forbid, if they get the coronavirus and die, I'm not gonna mourn like those. Who don't mourn? My parents know the Lord, and I know I'm going to see them again someday. But I still want to protect them. Uh, you know, when Jesus said, "Hey, when you're being persecuted, if you if you're persecuted in one town, flee to the next." He didn't say, "Oh, well, don't worry too much about it," because you know, you know me. You know, I give you eternal life. So if you're persecuted in one town, if you just happen to die, you'll go to heaven. No. He said, um, and I believe that this is in Matthew 10, he said, if you're persecuted in one town, flee to the next. Run away. If they're coming after you, run away. Well, one reason might be because, you know, they have more chances to preach the gospel. But another reason is that, I mean, Jesus doesn't uh, depreciate self-preservation. Now, he does at the, if it, if the only way to preserve your life is to deny him, Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 30 to 33, you know, if anyone who denies me before men, I'll deny him before my Father in heaven. But anyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. So if someone puts a, a sword to your throat and says, I'm going to cut off your I'm going to cut off your head if you unless you renounce Christ, you have your head cut off. OK, <laughs> don't deny Christ. But Jesus is not against packing up your bags in the middle of the night and running away to a safer place. So why would Jesus be against closing down churches for a little while until this pandemic quiets down? I see no reason why he would. You know, if we're still getting the preaching and if we're still, you know, <sighs> church is more than a building. It's more than a building. We, in fact, we are to be the church. Church is supposed to be more than a place you show up once a week for a, for an hour or two. It's supposed to be more than that. We are to, we are the church. The church is not a place. The church is a is a body. The church is a body. The body of believers. The body of Christ. And if you. If you seriously think that God cares more about whether you show up at a building for a couple of hours rather than protect the weak and the vulnerable to do everything you can to avoid getting infected, I mean, you might be fine, but other people aren't so lucky. Then you need you you don't know a thing about God. I'm sorry. I gotta be blunt. You don't know a thing about the Lord. You need to repent. You need to fall on your knees in prayer, and you need to study your dang Bible. Get out your Bible, and read it. Study it. Because if that's what you think, 
then you have the heart you have the heart of a Pharisee. You don't have the heart of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, the blog, the whole dang ministry. I mean, it's 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 more than just a podcast and a blog. If you want to support me, help me out, get research materials, get new uh, equipment. I need a new computer. I'd like to go to YouTube. Um, you know, with more RAM, then become a Cerebral Faith patron. Patreon is not just a donation service. It's not just you give some money and you don't get anything in return except, oh, hey, I helped Evan out. Uh, you get some good things in return. You get early access to the podcast episodes. You get early access to all of the blog posts I write. Um, if you're a $10 or a $20 patron, you get Patreon-exclusive audiobooks to all the books I've written, and you get all of the books I've written in ebook format. Like, if you become a, a $3 patron, you get all of my books in audiobooks. Like, all four of them. Or more. You know, when I get when I make more, you're going to get them. Like, if you become a patron now, and let's say you only get, like, four books, well, if I make a fifth book, you're going to get that, too, when, when it when it comes out, uh, just become you. Just because you become a patron before the book is released, that doesn't mean that you're not going to get. Uh, you're, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to shoot the Moby file your way through email uh, when it finally is produced. It's like, oh, you, you became a patron before this book came out. Too bad. No, I'm, you know, this is going to be an ongoing uh, thing. So if you want to become go to go to patreon.com/cerebralfaith and if you want more content blogs podcasts go to cerebralfaith.net I got a whole library of uh, good things apologetics biblical studies systematic theology like it says underneath the logo that will help you learn to defend the faith and help you to cultivate an intellectually fulfilling Christian worldview Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I will see you next week. God bless. Also, wash your hands!